6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. He, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. He's in the synagogue, he stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now notice what he does here. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. He goes to a specific passage for a specific purpose. Let's see what he read here. According to Luke, here's what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And what comes after Lord? A period, right? That's, that's the way it's in Luke. He's reading, it happens, from Isaiah 61. Let's take a look at this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Whoops, there's a comma there in our, in our translation, implied presumably in the te original text, but there's a comma. And then there's a phrase, and the day of vengeance of our God. Why did Jesus end the reading at the comma? Because that, he did that because of the next verse. He closed the book, gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture... Fulfilled in your ears. That's why he couldn't put that last phrase, because that will take place at his second coming. This is his mandate for the first coming, as we would look at it. This, this, this triggers the beginning of his ministry. This day is this scripture fulfilling yours, and he is fulfilling the mandate that that passage in, in Isaiah summarizes. Interesting. Now, what we have here then, by the way, is, a, is kind of a gap. There's a mandate described by Christ. Part of that mandate is yet future. There's a gap, if you will, in that comma. That comma has lasted about 2,000 years already. Follow me? Same thing's true with Peter's redaction there. He doesn't mention that last phrase. Because that's not during the church period, it's later. That's what we call an interval, a gap, okay? It's implied. But here, by Peter in the one case, and Christ in the second place, it's obvious 
And I could facetiously say it proves that Jesus is a dispensationalist. What do I mean by that? People who are dispensational argue that the history of God's plan is in, in segments in which there's certain conditions in each one. And there's a dispensation, the dispensation in Eden is a little different than the dispensation in Noah. And Moses, you can go right on through and study those things when they start, when they finish. And that's called dispensational. There are many people that take that to an abusive level. That's not getting into. That's why some people regard dispensationalism as sort of a, a stigma. No. The scripture says we should rightly divide the word of truth. And that's all we're doing here. And clearly Jesus did that. He divided history with that comma. This is my mandate. Does it. That comma lasts 2,000 years before he finishes it. There's a gap there, okay? No problem. Peter had a gap. How many gaps like this are there in the Scripture? Big surprise, by the way. Not many people realize this. If we go through, the first one here was Psalm 34 that Peter quotes in 1 Peter 3.10. And we can go right on through a whole bunch of these, and we discover a fascinating thing. How many gaps are there of this kind? 24. That happens to fascinate me because I think there is a significance to certain numbers. Obviously, three is, means many things, but certainly includes the Trinity. The number seven isn't divine, it's complete because Satan has seven heads. So the point is, it, seven tends to be completion, eight is a new beginning. We've, and we don't make those up, we just observe that as you go through Scripture. Those numbers seem to have those, you know, Im, Im, imply those qualities. What's interesting, the number 24 is a strange number. It occurs two places. David organizes the priesthood into 24 courses in, in, the, in the book of Chronicles. And we discover in Revelation 5 and on that there are 24 elders that identify themselves as representing the redeemed from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So 24 seems to be speak of priesthood, but in the case of Revelation, a royal priesthood that rules and priesthood, both together, and that only occurs with three people. Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, Psalm 110, and the church is a royal priesthood, both rules and, and, and has priestly functions. Well, it's fascinating to me that the structure of the text has within it 24 gaps that you can find if you want to track each one down. I'll leave that to you. You can go through the notes and, and uh, track it. Number 19, of course, is the Luke 4 rendering of uh, Isaiah 64 and so forth. Or 61, I mean, verse 1 and 2. So, uh, fascinating. I wouldn't make a big thing of it, but I can just tell you candidly, for me personally, I regard this as very deliberate design. I believe that this is a self-reinforcing um, uh, phenomenon that the church is in a gap, and it shows up 24, that gap shows up 24 times in the text. I believe that's not accidental. I believe it's deliberate for the sensitive student. And I wouldn't go beyond that, but I can tell you candidly, it was a source of incredible encouragement to, to me to, to discover that. I didn't discover it personally. I picked it up from a number of places. 24 so-called dispensational gaps that include the church age and scripture. 24 elders and the 24 is a number symbolizing the church, apparently. Now, there are some people that also see a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And there's, of course, a controversy of a totally different kind. And we get deal with that, of course, in our Genesis commentary from time to time. It's a different kind of a gap. Anyway, moving on. Peter continues now, verse 13. 
and who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? And uh, see, no matter how uh, evil men seek to injure believers, there can be no evil befall you that is not father filtered. That's what Romans 8 is all about. And anytime you're in a hardship, you start with Romans 8.28 and read it to the end of the chapter. And if it's my Bible, I put a tab there and I check it once a day to make sure it's still there. <laughs> I remember when I was going off to the Naval Academy. I, was, I went from high school to the Naval Academy. And the day that I actually physically left, I was in the driveway, in my car in the drive, in my pastor's driveway. He was giving me a farewell and just encouraged me. He, we went through Psalm 91 together. He says, read that every day. And Psalm 91 got me through Plebeer. Um, for what it's worth. So, and don't, don't knock that. I understand West Point had five suicides this past year, which is a peak. And I, think, I don't think that's a commentary about West Point or Annapolis because I don't think they've changed that much. I think it's a, it's a comment on the quality of the applicants. But let's move on. So this includes, by the way, persecution, sickness, financial uh, distress, all those things are used by God to sanctify for good. He may be putting you through the ringer. If you're a believer, that's for your own good. And what your prayer should be, that the lessons not be wasted. There's some lessons you may need, but you'd like to do it once and only once. Okay? So when you go through these hardships, take comfort in the fact that Romans 8 is still there. In a lot of passages like that. No matter what it is that God is using to sanctify you, but your prayer should be, in addition to praising Him, is that the, le that the lessons not be wasted, because you're in boot camp for the kingdom, and He's doing that for your own good, whether you realize it or not. And that's what we call a faith choice. You choose to understand that no matter how it feels. There's two kinds of choices. There are emotional choices. That's of the flesh. And there's by the, the choices by faith which are consistent with the Word of God. That's your, that's your resource. Nan and I are, have just completed a book called The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, which is a handbook for the overcomer. How you deal with the world, the flesh, or the devil. They're different. Totally different rules of engagement. And what do you how to practically do it? Well, that's, that's part of it. But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But make sure, by the way, he's going to say here, that it's for righteousness' sake, not just because you're obnoxious. You see? If ye suffer for righteousness' sake, only he can say, the Lord is the strength of my life. That person can say, of whom shall I be afraid? If God be for us, who can be against us? Paul raises that question there in, first, in, in Romans chapter 8. He who walked with them in the fiery furnace and stopped the mouths of lions also keeps a watchful eye on the saints. Who is the one that saw Daniel, uh, or I should say his three friends, through the in Daniel, to, you know? Who is the one that was with Daniel before the lions later on under the Persian Empire? That same one loves you so much that he can't take his eyes off you. A little kid asks his grandpa, does God watch me all the time? Grandfather says, he loves you so much he can't take his eyes off you. It wasn't quite what the kid wanted to hear, but it made his point, okay? 
But oh, this is this is a verse that you'll quote many times. You'll hear it quoted. This is a, a one of the many key verses in this chapter. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with, with meekness and fear. Great verse. I encourage you to commit it to memory. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. First of all, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Our hearts must be separated unto Him, and this is our most important preemptive stewardship. I often ask our uh, institute classes, what's your most important stewardship? And the wives are all hoping that the husbands will answer the family more than the profession. No, there's something even closer. What is your top priority in terms of stewardship? It's not your profession. It's not your family. It's your heart. You want to be stewards over Where is your heart? Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Step one, preemptive, ahead of everything else. And next step, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that's in you. Why do you believe what you believe? You better be prepared to respond to that. Well, I don't know. That's what my parents taught me. That's what the pastor said in church Sunday. No, 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 no. What is the re Be ready to give an answer. That's why God called you to Him to be a witness, to be an ambassador. You say you're a Christian. Then the third commandment has heavy duty on you. What is the third commandment? Right? Take not the name of the Lord in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless, the take of his name in vain. That's not about swearing or foul language. That's not what it's about. It's not about vocabulary. It's about ambassadorship. If you're going to take the name of the king, if you call yourself a Christian, you're taking the name of Christ, then you better be prepared to represent him competently and faithfully. You need to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you the reason of the hope that is in you, with all meekness and fear. Not by being obnoxious, not by thrusting tracks in his mailbox. No, no. This is a mandate to be equipped in apologetics. That's from a Greek term, to apologize. Well, apologetics actually is the defense of your faith. There are lots of books, there are a lot of courses, there's a lot of background on how to defend the doctrines you believe in. Our approach, we think the right one, is just Stay in the Word of God, cover to cover, and all that will take care of itself. Some people go at it the other way and actually try to build logical presentations on each particular challenge. And that's fine. I'm not knocking that. But we tend to go the other way, verse by verse through the Scripture, and it'll take care of itself, we believe. But the main point is there is a craft and artistry to being an apologist. The skills are very similar to an attorney in a jury trial, presenting his case before a jury, okay, defending the faith against your adversaries. We believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Why? You should know. We believe that the, word, that the Bible is the Word of God. Really? Why? You should be able to answer those questions. In the Institute, we tend to take that somewhat for granted, or something that comes later, we're more interested in epistemology, a little different craft here. 
Epistemology is the study of, tr uh, of truth, its scope and its limits. How do you know something is true? We sort of feel that if you can really do that, the other will follow. And that's not the tools, that doesn't generally, uh, con uh, is not congruent with a trial lawyer. It's more the skills of the detective trying to solve the crime. He's trying to determine what's true, what's real. Of the evidence, what can I rely on? Because we're in a world of facts that are misstatements. We're in a world of deceit and of all kinds. And so our challenge is how do you determine exactly what Pilate asked, what is truth? Good question, what is truth? Jesus answered very directly, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and so on. But epistemology is a study of knowledge, its scope and its limits. Different set of tools. It's inductive, the other one's deductive. But anyway, we'll move on. Key ver verse though, 1 Peter 3.15, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that's in you. Key idea, key concept. That's a challenge that every one of us needs to uh, undertake. Moving on, verse 16. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good behavior or conversation in Christ. The best defense against slander is to be innocent. How do you defend yourself against slander? Easy. Don't be guilty. Be innocent. Peter maybe have been alluding here to the occasion where he denied Christ out of fear in words that were neither gentle nor respectful. That may be lurking behind Peter's expression here. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. If See, if you're suffering for evil-doing, well, you brought that upon yourself. If you suffer for well-doing, if that's the will of God, praise God. That's an opportunity. It's also of paramount importance to realize that it is our justified hurts that are the most dangerous. One of the things I learned from my wife as she was doing a research for the many books that she's published in this, in this practical area is that your hurts, your resentments, your hurts need to be left at the cross because they're binding you to that person. You want to be free of that uh, root of bitterness. You need to take those hurts, those resentments, and leave them at the foot of the cross. Fair enough. Here's the surprise that she pointed out to me. I was startled when I began to realize the implications of it. The most dangerous resentments or hurts are the justified ones. Those hurts or resentments I might have that really aren't justified are easy to let go. I finally realized that it's, it's freeing for me to leave those at the cross. Hey, I can do that. The tough ones are my resentments that are justified. Because so-and-so really did that to me and it was so wrong. Those are the tough ones to let go, and those are the ones that you need to put at the foot of the cross, because they're binding you to that person. The freedom you feel when you can put that at the cross and you let it go. I, I had a, a partner in business that uh, defrauded me, betrayed me, and uh, he did his thing, and we ended up splitting off and so forth. Many years later, he came to me, kind of sheepishly, but he wanted to make amends. And he was startled. I told him, that was not a problem. I washed my hand. You know, that, that, that was scrubbed a long time ago. Because Christ has forgiven me far more than I've forgiven you. So that's all forgiven. It's not done. He was startled, refreshed. And he, he, he came to, re, to repent and apologize. Didn't need to. It's not, a, not an issue. 
That was the past. We're going to new things. And it was, it was astonishing to him as a witness because he'd been troubled by that over several years, that he knew that the, 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 the things that he pulled off really were a form of uh, fraud and betrayal. Not a big deal. We both survived it, obviously, and so on. But the point is, we're not a problem. He thought it was. And in his mind, he assumed I was bearing a resentment. No, not at all. And we had a wonderful fellowship. But it was interesting, it was interesting to, to just to see that. It was a justified hurt, but I had given that to the Christ for a lot of reasons. Because we're going to, you know, new day, new deal, as they say on Wall Street. Also remember the cross in, in verses... The next verses, in verse 18 to 22, Peter is going to illustrate the principles that we've been looking at over the last four verses, using our perfect example. He's been giving us advice here. He's going to use Christ as an example of actually applying these things here. And verse 18, which follows, is one of the shortest and simplest and one of the richest summaries in the New Testament of the meaning of the cross. Someone says, what does the cross mean? Boy, you can speak volumes there. You can go through Isaiah 53 and pick up 12 verses that express the purpose of the cross. You can take all of Paul's epistles. You go on and on. Here's a verse, one of the richest summaries of the cross, coming in verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why did he do that? For us. For the unjust. Why? That that might bring us to the cross. The law won't bring us to the cross. His grace and his mercy does. I love what Hal Lindsey does with the word grace. He says it's an mnemonic. For God's riches at Christ's expense. Christ paid the price so that God could draw you to him. Because he paid, paid our debts. After his body and spirit had been separated in death. That's what death is all about. He was raised again, how? By the Holy Spirit. Wow. Yes, he really died. You and I can't grasp that. He really did die. And he was raised again by the Holy Spirit. That death was not a chicanery. It was not just, well, a little dip because he was supernatural. And so, no, 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 don't. He died. Body and spirit separated. Raised again by the Holy Spirit. Then we get to a very strange verse coming. The spirits in prison. Which spirits and who were they preached to? Verse 19. Verse 18 is a great verse. You can take that whole verse and make a, a study of it. I'll leave it to you to go through the notes and so on. But here, verse 19, we have a verse that's widely confusing many people over the centuries. Peter says, By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Is that he... Who is the he and who are the spirits and where are they? Which spirits are we talking about here? When were they preached to? What are we talking about? The spirits in prison. Clement of Alexandria, about in the second century AD, he taught that Christ was sent to Hades in his spirit to proclaim the message of salvation to the souls of sinners who were imprisoned there since the flood. That's what he taught early. Sorry, that view is inconsistent with Scripture. There is no conversion after death anywhere. Some people try to read that into this. Big mistake. That's not what it's talking about, apparently. Augustine, a couple of centuries later, 
said that the pre-existent Christ proclaimed salvation through Noah to the people who lived before the flood. Hmm, that's a little more possible. However, Augustine is departing from the context of the previous verse. This follows, verse 19 follows verse 18, that's not accidental, one follows the other. He went and preached. Now, we get misled by that word preached. It actually comes from Caruso to proclaim, and uh, not preach in the sense of seeking repentance, simply proclaim or declaration is what that word actually means. That doesn't necessarily imply repentance as its object. It can include simply declaring a victory, is, is, is Caruso. Now, the spirits. The term is usually applied to supernatural beings, but it is used at least once, maybe more than that, uh, to human spirits. And Hebrews 12 is an example. And they are described in the following verse, coming, as those who were disobedient when God waited patiently for Noah to finish building the ark. We're going to discover that in Peter's thought here, the next verse is going to reveal what he has in his mind is Noah building the ark. Okay? So let's take a look at that. See, they, the spirits had rebelled against the message of God during the years the ark was being built. God declared that he would not tolerate people's wickedness forever, but in long-suffering extended the life of Methuselah, delaying the judgment by 120 years. Methuselah's life becomes a model of God's mercy, and it's the longest lifetime in the Bible, I think deliberately. Since the entire human race, except Noah, was evil, God determined to wipe mankind from the face of the earth. Genesis, all this is out of Genesis 6. The spirits referred to in 1 Peter 3.20 may be the souls of the evil human race that existed in the days of Noah, the people that drowned in the flood. Those spirits are now in prison awaiting the final judgment of God at the end of the millennium. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Peter. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.